Welcome back to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, Mariam Jam, the founder of I Am The Code. Thank you for showing up and thank you for supporting us. It means so much, really. We have been really busy this week with the Kakumo Refugee Girls and Boys. They have been assigned their global mentors and we are genuinely excited for them. It's history. For the first time, the girls and boys will have access to Coursera and content. For the next 12 weeks, they will have to learn amazing subjects and hopefully they will get certificates that will give them dignity and pride. I am so honored to be part of this. I want to thank our guests for coming to the show, for sharing their knowledge and supporting the podcast. So many people have been fantastic at guiding us, showcasing our work and believing in us. Really, it means a lot. Thank you. Talking about guiding and encouraging us, I caught up with my dear friend from the World Economic Forum, Adrian Monk. In 2018, Adrian, myself, and a group of young global leaders traveled to the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. The Kakuma camp and Kalobe integrated settlement have a population of over 196,000 people. They registered refugees and asylum seekers. And the refugees we have there are from South Sudan, Burundi, Kinshasa, and Somalia. That's where my girls are, my co-hosts. We went to learn from the refugees, listen, and capture their amazing stories, unique, incredible stories, I will say. During the time I was there with Adrian, five days we were in the car together. We were part of the education team. He demonstrated compassionate leadership. I was really stuck by that. Until now, it's in my mind. Adrian grew up in a council estate in the UK. He had to orchestrate his path to be where he is today. It wasn't all easy for him as a young boy. I really enjoyed our conversation because he recognized his privilege and his power. Adrian loves to use his creativity and leadership to give back. He loves his team of talented people. He wants to do well for people who do not have platform to talk for themselves. It was a candid conversation. I learned so much. I hope you do too. See you on the other side. So good morning, Adrian. Good morning, Mariam. How are you? I'm so happy to have you. Thank you so much for being here with us. How are you doing? My pleasure. I'm, I'm doing great, actually. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying uh, not traveling all the time and actually being in one place with the family, which is a pretty unusual experience for me. Uh, I don't know if they're enjoying it, but I'm enjoying <laughs> it. So what was the last event you did before, um, before the lockdown? So I think the last thing I did was actually Davos. That was the last. Uh, that was the last event. And in fact, in Davos, we had uh, people telling us about this uh, terrible flu that was hitting uh, Wuhan, and uh, we had people from Vaccine Alliance, from CEPI, which is the uh, uh, the epidemic prevention uh, organization, and they all were saying we're very concerned about this. And then, yep, we uh, the world got to know they were right. I was in uh, I was in Kakuma with uh, with Miwaza. And how are you feeling? How is the family? They're good. My daughter is at university in London, so uh, we haven't seen her for about six months. She's had her 21st birthday party uh, without us. We did it all online, and uh, you know I have my son who's 16 um, and my wife at home, 
Um, but yeah, it's been it's been quiet. It's been I've enjoyed being with them. I don't know if they'd share the same experience, but uh, <laughs> you know, you know it's, for me, it's unusual not to be traveling, and and it's quite nice. I know, I know. I always see you at airports, and so I was just saying to to the audience that um, you you and I spend five days, I think more than five days in Kakuma mm. refugee camp in Kenya, where, uh, so Kakuma is a refugee camp for all of you who don't know, they have over 200,000 people that lives in that camp. And Adrian came with us because we had uh, something called the YGL journey. And uh, I was part of the education team with Adrian, with the mm. base of education in France. And um, and I learned so much with you that week because, you know, it was, it was really hard for all of us. We've never been in that sort of situation. Uh, but what I said to the guys, why did you want to invite Adrian? I said, I just wanted people to know, you know, the other side of Adrian, because everybody thinks you're a media person, you know, you're mm. rushing all over the place. But it was really amazing. You were very calm. You were listening to people and you were very kind with the, the refugees. And I, I was observing you every day. You were listening to them. And, and uh, I just wanted to, to say that's why I wanted to have you. And that's why I love you and respect you so much, because, you know, with this current situation going on, we don't know sometimes how people feel, but I just want to say on behalf of myself and, and, and everyone I know that, I just want to say we really admire your leadership and your kindness in to, to, to humanity, really. Thank you. Well, the, the feeling is very mutual, but, um, you know, the people, obviously, I think I feel foremost uh, are the people in, in Kakuma itself and people in situations like them, because, you know, we imagine how annoying or how difficult lockdown's been for us with all the privileges and, and all the incredible resources that we have. And mm. I think about their situation and how they live with far, far greater uh, challenges every day. And I think it's it's humbling to to realize how they're getting through all of this and how they're coping. You know, it's, it's really important you said that because many people, uh, especially now with what's happening in the U.S. and many people don't know that actually we are all human beings and we've been all through difficulty. And um, that's why I wanted the youth to, to listen to you because the Kakuma girls and the boys actually now listening to this podcast. They love it and they love listening to world leaders. That's why we invite people like you to share what is happening in the West and also they can share what is happening in Kakuma. Um, but you are a very quiet person. You just didn't land here. You just didn't come, you just didn't become Adrian like this. Do you, you want to share a little bit about your background? You worked really hard when you were young as well to be where you are today. Do you mind sharing a little bit? I mean, I'm a very lucky person and I, I, can't, uh, I can't kind of pretend to uh, have overcome any of the kind of difficulties that the people listening would have to overcome. But... Uh, I was born in a in a small council house that my grandparents had. It was two rooms. My mother was a teenage mother. Uh, she uh, got pregnant. My dad had to had to leave the army and uh, join her. And uh, they had a tough they had a tough time. I mean, you know, tough mm-hmm. by the standards of the 1960s um, in 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 Great Britain. Um, but I was born into that environment where my father had left school at 14. Uh, you know, my mother was a very determined lady. Um, she had went on to have two more kids, uh, one with learning difficulties and, and other difficulties. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, a an interesting upbringing and I, and I was a very lucky kid. You know, at seven years old, I got a scholarship, which is, you know, very, very young. I'm oh, sure yeah. some of the kids uh listening would know what it feels like when you know you're suddenly lifted out of the world you grow up in which is a very small world with very people with very small expectations 
you know, my, my granddad was a cinema projectionist. Uh, you know, my, my grandmother was, uh, you know, looked after the house and used to scrub the front doorstep, uh, like you see in the old English movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, to be taken out of that world and into a world, an educational world where people went to university and they went to Oxford or Cambridge, places like that. It was a really odd experience. And uh, I think probably, you know, it's a, it's a universal experience that, uh, of what education does. Education is liberating, it's exciting, but it's also very alienating because it takes you away from people you love sure. and it puts a barrier between you and them in a funny sort of way because, you know, their world is, is tiny compared to your world. So for my brother and sister growing up, you know, they didn't have the same opportunity I had. Um, and uh, they both left school at 16. Uh, you know, my sister's no, no longer with us. She had a very tough, challenging life. Um, but it's, uh, it's made me all my life very aware of how lucky I've been and how that talent and opportunity are not evenly distributed. Sure. And also the barriers that people face, even when they get success. Uh-huh. And that to me, you know, that I think is something I think, you you know, it's part of your story too. It's not, yeah. you know, you don't get to a point of success in life and say, oh, that's great. I, you know, all of my previous concerns and worries are gone. All of the people I, I met along the way are gone. You know, you carry these things with you. And I think yeah. it, unless we acknowledge that, unless we recognize that, it's too easy to you know, ignore the challenges that even people who've gone on to be successful have gone on to, to, to go forward kind of face. And I think, and I, when I say that, I'm thinking specifically even of, of, uh, of the girls and the, and the pupils listening to a podcast like yours, because oh. you know, they're in a privileged position of education, sure. but they're also in a tough place because yeah. they're probably leaving families behind, brothers, sisters, relatives. And, uh, you know, these aren't easy choices for them. But that has built your compassion. I see it. I felt it. The reason why I get on with you, because I know you know. And I think today with the world we are where everyone is trying to do fast things, nobody cares about. When you arrive in a position of privilege and power, you forget the other people. But what I've noticed about you is that you always, always calm and and listen. And, And I think that compassion and kindness, you know, it's really important for the world leaders to have because you've been there. Yes, you know, living like the Kakuma girls or all of that, you didn't have all of that difficulties, but you understand pain and you understand also, you know, difficulty. And I think that's that's what I really like about you. Um, and, and you mentioned that when you were growing up. So, is, so did you go to a private school? I was a cathedral choir boy, which uh-huh. might make people laugh because <laughs> I have a terrible voice. And you, can you imagine me as a little kid singing? in a church but because i sang in the church they paid for my education at um a private school so uh that was a school uh in in norfolk beautiful old cathedral and uh i got to go to this uh, this school with uh, a lot of other kids it was uh, it was a very funny experience because the school was actually uh like a grammar school so yeah. at the beginning but it became a private school as time went on and one of the interesting things for me being there and also at university was seeing that growing up, uh, I don't know if, you know, listeners all kind of relate to this, but growing up, I always thought things would get better over yes. time yes, and more equal and that there would be more opportunity for people. 
And actually what I saw was it didn't happen that way. You mm-hmm. know, the school I went to became less of a place of opportunity. For, there were less people like me there. And when I went to university, there were fewer people like me at Oxford. And I find, found that really both shocking and disappointing. And it it brought home to me, you know, the fact that the world is not on this kind of nice, gentle, upward slope that we like to pretend sometimes and that it needs all of us to kind of say something and do something to Mm. to try and keep it moving in the right direction you never forgot where you came from adrian and i think that um you know i know you're very humble and 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 you don't like blowing your own trumpet but you never forgot where you came from until now you're very humble you participate you you know make sure that everyone uh, participate. And I think that's what I, my, my next question to you is, knowing all of this privilege we have, you know, because you, if you were not taken away from 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 that house to give you, a, you know, a scholarship to go to a school where you can get educated and be where you are today uh, and have this compassion, this kindness in your heart, knowing that, yes, I made it, but other people need to make it too. Mm. What, what would you say to the world leaders today with everything happening with, uh, in the US, George Floyd, the discrimination, the racism, people, the things people say, and the audacity they have to, to say things without thinking? What would you say to the world leaders today? One of the most powerful things I think I've seen recently is a couple of American generals um, black generals, and, and you can find what they've written online, actually, on one of the videos. There's a general called Charles Brown, who is the, I think he's the Air Force Chief of Staff in the US. So he's a very big, big guy. And he talks about, you know, the pain he experiences and the frustrations and the discrimination that he experiences. Uh, and there's another general who headed the Defense Intelligence Agency, Um and uh, he talks about his experience. He's a, a black American, uh, and he talks about his kids' experience. And both of them, you know, they're very privileged individuals. They're very powerful individuals. But the journey they've been on has left them scarred. Mm. You know, it's left the marks on them. And it's also left marks on their kids. Yep. You know, the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency talked about his son being uh, caught underage drinking with three white boys in a car, but his son was the only one who was spent the night in prison. You know, he talked about his daughter wanting to go to swimming club and being told that black people couldn't swim by someone who laughed at her. Now, these are horrible things to happen, but you think about them, these are happening to incredibly powerful people. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys are generals. They're incredibly respected. They're incredible. You know, they're people in society who have really reached the top of their professional kind of tree. And this is happening to them. Now, how does that translate when you go down to ordinary people's experience? Mm-hmm. It's so much, so much worse. And, you know, for me at least, uh, I've never experienced some of the things that go go to the kind of routine examples of racism. But, you know, I do know a little bit about the kind of microaggressions of discrimination. I think I think you can talk about that as well. People may not know that, but you have to fight so hard to be where you are. Well, it's, you know, everything from my voice. If I, I mean, I can, I'm, you might laugh at me, but, you know, when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I used to talk, I used to talk like this. So my accent when I was a little boy, my nan and my dad, they all talk <laughs> like this. Now, 
if you can hear me, you'll think that's a pretty funny way to talk. But, you know, if I talk like that now in, in Britain, you'd think I drove a tractor um, or I was a kind of, far, you know, farm labourer or something. And so people judge you from your voice, especially in the UK, you know, not the colour of your skin, but the way you sound. And, you know, the moment I opened my, my mouth, people knew I was from a poor background. And so I had to learn to speak like better off people. And I've lost a little bit of that. But, you know, I remember when I left university and I was going to for job interviews and, and people said, well, you can't be a reporter if you don't speak properly. You can't be a banker if you don't speak properly. That's discrimination because it's, it's, it's making people losing their self-esteem as well. Yeah, it does make you lose it. And it also in the process, it makes you you know have a little bit of contempt for yourself mm -hmm. but also of the people you grew up with because you feel like why did they give me this voice why did they give me this way of speaking you know why couldn't they have given me a, a nice voice or a nice way of speaking that would have helped me in life and so you build these resentments up it's not their problem it's not their fault but because the social pressure comes in on people it toxicifies the environment and i think that's the most painful horrible thing is is it it creates pain and it creates hostility and it creates anger and all of those things it creates in the victims of, of these things. And so, you know, a lot of my journey through life has been trying to get rid of all the anger I feel because I've been angry for a lot of my life, angry at my brother, not having the opportunities I had angry at my nephews, not having those opportunities, angry about my sister and, and, the, and, and my grandparents And, you know, all of this anger, obviously, to some extent, it motivates you, but also it gnaws away at the inside of you because, you know, you, you can't kind of keep that going. And I think to me, at least, you know, I would say it's an everyday battle. I wouldn't say I'd overcome that at all, but I, I feel it for people and I feel sympathy for people who are angry uh, and angry often, you know, with people like me. Uh, yeah, yeah. And rightly, you know, people who they perceive to have power. And I, you know, I can understand it and I do empathize with it. Now, they might not want my empathy and they, and they, you know, they want more from me than that. But I think that comes to the point also, Adrian, that I think is because, again, uh, we are not educated to know that discrimination is not just about color. It's not just for me. My, my personal opinion is that discrimination is not just uh it's not just racism you know it's different race groups we have across the world where you know gays and lesbians and white people so many people i mean i live in a council estate in i get so angry with uh, the government here because i feel that my council estate they had they're letting women down and girls Uh, mm. And so I think that this, and then because my son grew up here, I grew up here a single black woman over 25 years, but I feel angry for my community because I think we can do more for them. Mm. And I think, if, I think for you to even feel that, for you to even feel that, uh, you know, despite where you are today, you feel, I think that's a remarkable um, feeling because we talk about white privilege all the time. And I think, again, narratives, you being in the media industry, you, you being, I think we should also uh, think about, what we say white privilege mm. white privilege it's not every white person who's privileged but do white people do use their privilege sometimes to get away with things and maybe we should educate people about those terms and those narratives you can't ignore the fact that uh as a white person you don't face the kind of everyday 
um, set of problems and discrimination that black people face in, mm -hmm. in European society, in American society, in other societies. The one thing with that privilege is, um, I'd say for a start, it's a, it's a difficult framing for people to accept, okay? Mm -hmm. If you're trying to make friends with people, it's a, it's a hard way of doing it. And, you know, the people who are angriest about white privilege are the poor, you know, often the poorest white people because they feel, um, you know, that uh, they don't have privilege. You know, they don't, that no, they feel unrecognized in their own society. Totally. They feel ignored by their own society. Um, and I think, you know, when we talk about how we address some of those things, one is we need to act. Two, we need to act in a way that's, sensible and smart and three we have to have some real plans i mean i can give you an example from when i was a professor about scholarships maybe and that will tell you a little bit about how i think about these things when you look at the media industry media industry especially in the uk but in a lot of places is a very prestigious industry but it doesn't pay huge amounts of money and when you go into it you you, you know if you're a poor kid you know, you probably wouldn't go into the media. Why wouldn't you go into the media? Because the media is very contact-based. In other words, it's who you know. Secondly, you need to work for free for a long time. Now, if you're like me, when I left university, if I'd worked for free, I would have been homeless and hungry. So, you know, you need most of us who don't have family money, we need jobs, you know, we need income, okay? You know, that, and also it's not very meritocratic because it's contact-based. So for all those reasons, if you're a smart young kid from a disadvantaged background, say you're, you know, you're from a, a black um, background or an Asian background in the UK, and you think, I would like to be a journalist. If you do really well at school and you get to university, you know that your chances, if you're a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor, are much better than they are in the media. Why? Because as a doctor, you have to have a certain level of skill. At a certain point, if you qualify as a doctor, yes, you might face racism, of course. Yes, you might face discrimination, of course. But no one can turn away and say you're not a doctor. Mm -hmm. When you qualify as a barrister or you qualify as a solicitor, no one can turn away and say you're not a barrister, you're not a solicitor. So all of these things, these qualifications, give you a certain structure and a certain, if you like, um, kind of ladder on which to climb up professionally. And, and by the way, that's another thing I often find with people who come through that kind of background is they always look at education as the ladder and they're always wanting to take another exam or do something else or improve themselves. And, you know, I, I find myself in the same, you know, in things sometimes I'm like, oh, I'd love to do another degree or maybe I could qualify in this or do something else to prove myself. You know, I'm 55 years old. I mean, I should get over it. Um, but uh, it kind of stays with you. And so when we were looking at scholarships for journalism school, I said, okay, two things, well, three things you need to think about. One is you need to think about an income for these people while they're studying. Because if you're studying and also going out to make a living for yourself, you're not doing, you're not going to do as well as kids who are just studying. So you're instantly at a disadvantage. So you need a basic income to pay for your rent and to pay for your food. Then you need to pay for your fees because obviously you need to pay for the schooling. You can't take on debts. Uh, at that age then you need a job at the back of it because the most important thing about the industry is having experience if you don't have experience you can't get a job if you don't have a job you can't get experience that horrible kind of loop so we said after they finish we guarantee six months of work all of the people who went through that scholarship scheme 
have become successful people in, in the UK media. Sadly, not enough of them. But when I, we talk about equity and leveling the playing field, think how much you have to put into the equation for those people to help them. You have to give them an income. You have to pay their fees. You have to find them a job. These are all things normally we don't think about when we think about helping people. No, we don't think about it. And I think this is why we, um, in in Kakuma refugee camp, just coming back to refugees, mm. is that we, what what I find out with the refugees, you know, they've been stuck in that limbo for over 30 years. You know, mm. it's so, so long to wait. Mm. And But if when you give them a scholarship or, you know, what we're doing with them right now is giving them scholarship, make, they listen to this podcast, their ideas, you know, are opening up. You know, I know that you've been very, very kind and, and uh, and supportive to the the film industry in 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 Kakuma refugee camp, and they're mm. very grateful for that. The other thing I wanted to ask you is, why do you think that it's important to, for example, invest into the film industry in Kakuma refugee camp? Why do you think the stories of those refugees are important? Because tomorrow they're going to be sharing the stories you and I are sharing right now. I mean, I think for starters, just the you know the huge talent pool you have in that in that camp is is amazing, and their talent is kind of speaking to you. Not in the way that normal talent speaks to people, but it's speaking above all of the challenges, all of the everyday trials and tribulations that they face. So, you know, that is, to me, is is extraordinary, that people are just living with incredible difficulties, incredible barriers, and they're overcoming them to want to tell stories or to want to make films or to want to express themselves. Uh, Second, I think it's really important that they have their own voice. You know, for me, um, when we were in Davos, it was really important to bring a refugee Mm -hmm. to speak for refugees because people need to speak for themselves. So I don't want to speak on behalf of other people. And, you know, you you probably, you know, you can speak for yourself. I can speak for myself. Why should other people speak for us? Their voice needs to be heard. They're equals. They are equals. And they need to have an equal voice. But they don't have it. And I think, you know, the more we can do to give them a platform where they can stand as they should stand eye to eye with all of the rest of us in this world and and ask that we look them eye to eye and that we act to end what is effectively a system that's imprisoning people for lifetimes you know that is to me is just vitally important no, absolutely. I, I do I do agree. And we had a conversation recently with the, some of the refugees and they've been te- talking to me about racism as well. They suffered racism within within camps and you know within their mm. surroundings. And I just wanted to ask you that what, what do you think we should do about this this toxic conversation we have right now around racism? You know, I suffered racism in the UK, um, you know, and in France as well. So right now the conversation with George Floyd dying, uh, mm. you know, the, the, the systematic racism, as you mentioned, but also it's systematic discrimination, I would say. Even the poor people in the United Kingdom are living with COVID-19, we can see the discrimination. Mm. Children who don't have food in summer, mm. those basic fundamentals, human rights that we don't even have now. So w- what would you say that you, is, has been your thinking around this whole conversation about racism? I mean, I, I don't in any way want to downplay the issue of racism faced by black Americans, for example. I mean, I think there's a, you know, there's a historic wrong in that society. And there's also a historic wrong if you look at the impact of colonialism on a continent like Africa, mm-hmm. um, where, uh, you know, money has been drained, resources have been drained, and money has not been paid back and it hasn't flowed back, um, or it's flowed back as aid or loans, um, you know, in a way that's 
you know, completely inappropriate. You know, on a broader level, I think, you know, some of my career I spent as a war reporter. One of the places I reported on is is Northern Ireland, where, you know, the people in Northern Ireland, if they walked down the street, you would not be able to tell who was who. Mm. But when they open their mouths, when they tell you their names, you know exactly who's who. You know, it's a it's a a conflict built around human social constructs. You know, they're they're so similar, they're so they inhabit the same streets, they inhabit the same space, and yet they've constructed a way of of dividing themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, it speaks to something about us as human beings that we're great at creating communities, but we're also great at creating people who are not in our communities. True. And I, I don't know the answer. I mean, I always find myself very, very conflicted um, about it because I struggled in the community I grew up in and I was very happy to leave it to go and live in a big city because I found it, you know, constraining. It wasn't, uh, it didn't, you know, have any outlets for arts or, in, you know, intellectuals and stuff. And and I, you know, and I turned my back on that community and I, you know, I and I, I feel guilty about it as well, but um, I recognize that sometimes we we talk about community as being very positive and communities can also be quite toxic. Sure. And so we have to always, I think, just be on our guard about the way we construct our communities so that we keep them open to people and that we don't put up barriers and that we that we understand people because that's the most important thing, isn't it? I, I totally agree with you on communities and how do we build them. And then talking about the the young global leaders community, uh, we, we had a conversation about, you know, the diverse community we have. But at the same time, how do you bring this conversation within the YGL community? Mm. Because most of us, most of us, as you said, we in a in a position of power or privilege. And mm. and what is what is your advice for uh, for communities, not just the YGL community, but all of the communities that have privilege and connections. I remember you just mentioning connections. You know, many people don't have connections. Mm. And I always say that uh, the World Economic Forum is the creme de la creme of network. You know, you have every single individual in the world. <laughs> so h- how do we how do we make sure these communities, you know, this little pocket of communities in the world are also diverse and also allow this sort of conversation? Because some people are suffering inside and not saying anything. Uh, they're feeling discrimination. But how do you make it more open and more transparent to, to bring these conversations inside? I mean, I think for starters, you you have to try not to give up on people mm-hmm. um, and you have to be willing to accept people who are difficult and who might challenge where you are. Um, and I think that's something we none of us are very good at. You know, I like to be around people who make me feel comfortable. You probably like to be around people who make you feel comfortable. I mean, it's a natural human thing of, of not wanting to be challenged or to feel awkward or to feel embarrassed or or otherwise. And I think we need to find some spaces where we can have people like that in our lives um, and have them in our lives in a way that challenges us and makes us think twice. Um, and, you know, I, I wish I had a simple answer as to how we do that. I, I think, you know, one of the things I say to, to people uh, on the Young Global Leaders team uh, is be prepared to invest in difficult people because those people are often people who will challenge others and make things happen. But that doesn't come without a cost. You know, it does. It comes with a cost to them and it comes with a cost to you. And, you know, if you don't want to pay that price, it's very easy to find people who will just kind of uh, 
follow the rules and be nice and not do very much. That's not what makes a community, is it? I also think that I think language also matter because the, you know, I, I think I have got this, I don't know, this is my personal opinion, but I think sometimes uh, those communities need more commitment, more more loving and respect. You know, I don't believe people are difficult, but I think sometimes when they come from challenging backgrounds, they, they tend to portray the, the insecurities, especially when you come to a community where you don't know where you belong. So I think the word you know, probably difficult will be, in my opinion, you know, maybe a little bit insecure and they don't have, they don't know where they, they are. And so I think as, mm. a, as all these sort of communities we have across the world, if we can have, you know, just like the meeting you've been hosting with the World uh, Health Organization, just having these conversations to decode the, the language and mm. the narratives. And those, those will help, I think, within communities uh, you know, of, of difference, I would say. Um, I know also you had, um, you know, you, you you did a lot of work in Kakuma. We opened the Kakuma hub with the shapers mm-hmm. as well. I know you believe in young people. I know you believe in in the youth uh, and the energy, mm-hmm. uh, all of that. You know, what would you say to, to your younger self now you are, as you said, a 55 years old man <laughs> uh, <my laughs> of children? If you think about it very carefully, you know, really sit down and think about everything you've been, you've done. What would you say to the youngest, Adrian? Oh, that's a good question. Um, pers- probably I, I wouldn't have a lot of time for a younger Adrian because uh, I was very, uh, I was a very angry young guy. And I was also very um, confident person. So I was very uh, hard on myself and probably hard on other people. Um, and you know, like, and that's one of the reasons why I kind of, I I can empathize with people who are angry and who, who do feel and who do have those insecurities because I've, I've lived with them and through them and, uh, you know, I probably still have them. Uh, but I, you know, I'd probably find it quite difficult to, uh, to, to put up with. And when I think about some of the people I try and mentor, Mm-hmm. Often they're people who have had tough experiences and who are angry about them uh, and angry with people like me. Why do you think they're angry, Adrian? Why do you think those people are angry? And what can we do about it? Well, for, for the reasons we were talking about, which is, you know, a lot of the anger is about the people that um, is directed at lack of opportunity. It's mm-hmm. directed at the situation they find themselves in. Why am I born into this environment and not born into a, a better place? place or a better country or a better situation you know why are the people i love and care about why do i have to turn my back on them in order to get an educational opportunity or to get a start in life um you know why can't i give back uh why do i have to go and you know if i'm going to make a career go and move away from the people who've supported me and love me um you know these are all kind of tensions that you know can result in anger and I agree. I agree. and I, I and I'm I I don't think you're wrong. You know, people are wrong to be angry about those no, things. No. So we need to create a, a certain social um, justice, and I think we've been mm. conditioned. There are some there's so many conditions that we human beings have created. I think this is why it's important the the Kakuma girls and the refugees listen to you. And then talking about mentoring, uh, for the first time in history, uh, you know, our organization have managed to get uh, you know top people they're now mm. mentoring they're mentoring young girls and boys in Kakuma refugee camp if you look into your heart what would you say to those young girls and all of these people that are angry 
are suffering inside, want to do better. They will never have the chance. Personally, my opinion is if we didn't have you understanding, giving people a chance, that young refugee will not go to Davos because it's not everyone that will go to Davos. What would you say to these young people who are right now sitting down during COVID-19, waiting for something to happen? What would you say to them? I would say, you know, for starters, don't don't give up because it's easy to kind of give up on yourself and to give up on where you are. And, um, and I've, you know, I left school 15, 16 years old um, and I pretty much gave up on myself. You know, I was 20 when I got to university and I was very lucky again to go to university because, uh, you know, I left home. I, you know, I was uh, a little off the rails um, and, uh, you know, I think, it's easy to kind of think at 16 that your life is over because of where you are. And I guess, you know, as I've gotten older, I used Mm -hmm. to think that, you know, my path was the only path, you know, to get education, to go to a famous university, to get a good job and, and, and take that route. Then I go back and see people who didn't do that and who stayed and they've built families and they've built lives and they've made a difference and they've made the world in which they live in a small way, a better place. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, don't give up on on whichever route you find yourself taking, because, you know, whether or not you end up as a as a teenage mother, whether or not you end up as a star student, you know, these are just different paths. And you can make an incredible difference to people's lives, sometimes by staying where you are and by not losing your faith and not losing your uh, your energy. You know, politics needs people on the ground as much as it needs people in the president's office. And so, you know, I would say to everyone, you know, keep uh, keep faith with yourself because, you know, if you lose that, that's the hardest thing to get back. And uh, and it's the most important motivation. And that means you can go and be successful at any point in your life, at any time in your life when you're ready to make a difference. That's amazing. I've, I hope they're listening to that. You know, Adrian, you've been a very good ally to, to myself anyway. <laughs> and because I, again, like I said, you really understand, uh, you know, you understand, you know, my feelings and always, you know, you've been there to, to lend your expertise and your voice. What would you say to, uh, you know, the old allies we should have into the Black community, uh, the Black Lives Matters movement, all the people who are fighting justice, all of, all of these angry people, I will call them, the people who mm. are really upset with what's happening. What would you say for th- to those people to, to really try to balance power and, and policy a little bit? Because right mm. now that, that is really missing the policy and power balance for for people's life to get better, for children to have access to school, Kakuma girls to have access to connectivity, laptop, energy, the young girls living in the UK have food. You know, what do we what do we what do we say to those allies who can do something? I know there are people who can do something, but what would we say to those people to do something? I don't know if I'd say it as much to the allies as I'd say it to the people on the other side of that equation is don't underestimate the power of of, of protest. You know, often uh, we talk about uh, changing things incrementally, you know, and my organization, the World Economic Forum, is all about one brick at a time, you know, to build the wall. You know, one thing, one small thing leads to another small thing, and hopefully that leads to an improvement. And that, yeah, that is one way of changing things. But there's also changes that need to be revolutionary, mm-hmm. need to, that need to be big changes. I think for some, some injustices demand um you know the action 
mm-hmm. to awaken people to uh, to do stuff. And, you know, there's a great line from Martin Luther King where he talks about uh, white allies and white moderates. And he says, you know, in a sense, the white liberals who don't want to see things uh, change too much are the most, uh, the people he has the least respect for. And I would say to people protesting, you know, don't let allyship stop you asking for what you deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, the easiest thing for me to say to people is, look, I understand you and I hear you, but I'm not going to change. Um, yeah. uh, and for all of us to change, we all need to be put in a position of being made uncomfortable, um, especially people in power. So I would, uh, I would say the onus is on, is on people in power. The onus is on people like me to do something, not on people who are getting nothing, not getting resources, not being able to have a voice. I think that's a very good point you made because I I read a book recently from a, a you know a, a gentleman from the US called Dr. Kendi and he was talking about uh, racism and, and anti-racism and he was saying uh, I heard about him the, the other week and he said the way to combat racism is to be anti-racist but you need to start with yourself when when black people are telling you about issues or uh, when when women or any 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 race group is talking to you about how they feel your job is to listen and to take action. And so I think I think you're absolutely right in having an anti-racist attitude as a day-to-day practice, he was saying. Um, and using the power of media, as you said earlier, mm-hmm. the power of media where right now, you know, we, this morning I saw that Twitter is now, you know, stopping, uh, you know, the president of the United States saying so many bad things. You know, there's mm-hmm. a small video going around right now where this cute video of two, one young black boy and a white kid were mm-hmm. hugging each other, showing affection because they haven't seen each other for a very long time. And then he manipulated this video to to make it sound like the black the young white boy was running away from the young black boy it's mm. upsetting people online so our girls uh, in kakuma would like to get into the media industry they want to become journalists i think they have amazing stories mm. and i know you and i discussed this in kakuma where we would like to start you know teaching them about uh, filming uh, telling their stories and having a curriculum around media mm. what would you say to young refugee girls and and boys across the world they just want to start small they just want to get into the creative industry make videos now with the power of technology and innovation i think the thing i'd say to anyone who wants to get involved in the creative industries start creating you know we so often say to ourselves i want to wait until i feel i have the knowledge or the life experience to tell a story i want to wait until i have the skill to make that particular bring that particular story to life um but actually make that bad film make that write that bad story um because if you don't do the first bad thing you won't do the second better thing and you won't do the third great thing So it's all about getting over yourself. And I think it's very hard often, especially for people who who have come through the educational system where they're afraid of failure. You know, I've always, all my life, you know, I've always felt felt I was walking on a tightrope and underneath me there was nothing. If I fell off the tightrope, you know, I'd just keep falling. And, uh, you know, if I feel like that with all the success I've had and with all the privileges I've got in my life, I can only imagine how, vulnerable people feel uh you know in much tougher circumstances and i think you know when it comes to creating things get over that um that barrier to doing it and and for me for example 
I write in, I write a little email every week on, on LinkedIn and it's a little discipline for me because if I didn't have to do it, I wouldn't do it because, you know, I'm, I'm a perfectionist and I always do it and I say, oh, you know, I'm going to go back and rewrite it or redo it. But having to do it every week is a really great discipline for someone like me. So give yourself that little challenge. Every day I'm going to write 250 words every week or something. I'm going to publish a little piece of my writing online for anyone who wants it i'm going to make that one minute video you know that give yourself those little goals and you know from those little goals and those little achievements something bigger will will come and something you end up on netflix who knows <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean this is where everyone starts you know steven spielberg started with his little camera that his parents gave him and uh you know keeping going around making little films and and, and doing stuff Everybody starts small. Everybody starts, you know, takes those first steps. And maybe you want to hide them later on. You won't want to show them to people. But you know what? They're important. They're your journey. And they're part of making you into the individual that you uh, you want to be. So wow. Uh, they they know you have an amazing team at the World Economic Forum, a creative team. And I told them that you know all the beautiful stuff they've been saying. You have you have a say on it. So how do you create? How do you build an amazing creative team? Like a, a team with you know all the content we you know we consume at the World mm. Economic Forum. We, I go to the website every single day to learn. As you said, how do you create this amazing team? I know you have a beautiful team. And by the way, I want to say thank you so much for giving us a chance to be featured at NASDAQ with that amazing video of the girl. So I, I, I can't thank you enough, Adrian. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. I mean, look, I think with everything, you know, one of the great things when you start in life, you're very proud of what you do and what you've done. Um, and you have to be. But as you get older, I think you become prouder of the people you've helped and the people you've allowed to find a, a way forward and a voice. And I think for most of us, you know, you want to be in a position to offer people a, a vision and a goal that they can contribute to. I don't try, I try not to micromanage people. I try and find people to work with as collaborators who have a passion and energy and a vision of their own and who want to use working with me as a way of expressing it. And I think that's the most important thing I'd say is that it's much better to work with people who make you better um, than it is to work with people where you're always the best. And I, I mean, I feel that very much, you know, all of the people who make the videos and stuff for me, I used to make videos, they're all better than me. You know, the people who write for me, they're all better writers than I am. So all of that makes for a better team. It makes for a better experience i hope for people coming and, and and working with us and i would i would just say you know with every creative enterprise be it a band be it a uh, video studio be it a production team you know be it a film crew having that shared sense of direction and that ability within the team to express yourself and make something better towards an end. I think it's really important, really powerful. So I'd especially say that when you're thinking of collaborating with people, um, you know, bring, bring a kind of uh, a vision to what you want to do, but also be prepared to work with other people who've got a vision um, because, you know, we can't all lead all the time. Sometimes we have to be, uh, to be good leaders. We have to be good followers. So Wow, that's amazing. We have three things we do always with our uh, Resilient Souls people. So you're going to be part of this Resilient Souls series. What is humanity for you? Humanity for me, it's a good question. I suppose humanity for me is sharing experiences with people and 
discovering things that you could never know about uh, the people you live alongside. And that to me is, you know, what keeps me curious, what keeps me interested in, in all of my fellow human beings. The other one, uh, what is love for you? That's a very good question. For me, you know, love is something I associate very much with my childhood and my grandmother. And, uh, you know, she kind of brought me up. And it's funny, if you said that word, I would definitely go back to sitting beside her, watching her make a fire with coal and, uh, you know, seeing her scrub her doorstep and, and keep things beautiful, even though she lived in the kind of poorest, poorest of streets and the poorest of towns. And uh, for me, that's still, I can still almost smell the kind of smoky air. And that still feels a bit like love to me. It's funny. Wow, that's really amazing. What does resilience mean to you? I think resilience for me is about putting the next foot forward and also about taking a hand when it's offered because we all need that. You know, you can't be resilient without other people to help pull you up. And I think that to me is, is crucial. And we have one more question before you go. What have you been able to accomplish personally and professionally, if you want to say it, in the last three years that made you grow, open your mind, love yourself and be close to your family and to your loved ones? And you give so much to us. I think in terms of my accomplishments, um, I think I've tried to uh, make myself less angry um, and to be a little uh, less of a kind of uh, demon to myself, uh, which is good. Uh, I think I have, uh, I look at the people around that I've tried to help and I get inspiration and encouragement from seeing them flourish. And uh, also I enjoy working with the people I I work with. And, you know, I think that enjoyment of, of being around creative people and of being around people who give you strength and uh, make you proud is a a huge privilege and I'm so lucky to have a life where that's part of it so yeah those are the things I think that uh, give me strength and uh, give me pride well Adrian Monk we are so happy to have you we are proud that you have created your own path and you are creating the path for other people. So thank you so much for being on our podcast. We appreciate you. Thank you, Adrian. Mariam, thank you. And uh, yeah, um, as I said, um, huge admiration for people listening. They're the, they're the heroes out there. And it's uh, uh, I can't wait to get back and, uh, uh, and visit with them. That was really amazing. I've learned a lot from Adrian. I came across this quote that says, you can't understand someone until you have walked a mile in their shoes. Sometimes we think we know people, we actually don't know them because we are not curious enough to find out. So let's love each other more and connect and learn from each other. You have been listening to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, Mariam Jam. Join me very soon for another I Am The Code podcast episode. You can follow us on IamTheCode.org, on Twitter and on Instagram. I want you to stay resilient and thank you for being here.